Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Epiphany Lutheran Church of Mount Vernon, Virginia. We're a congregation of the Metro DC Synod of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. And you can find out more about us on our website at epiphanylutheran.org. A reading from the Gospel according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. Some Pharisees came and to test Jesus, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, what did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of dismissal and to divorce her. But Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote this commandment for you. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Then in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to him in order that he might touch them, and the disciples spoke sternly to them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, Let the little children come to me. Do not stop them, for it is to such as these that the kingdom of God belongs. Truly I tell you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. The Gospel of the Lord. The gospel, the good news of Jesus. It's difficult for many of us to hear these words of Jesus that we read today as good news. There are many of us here in worship this morning who have been divorced. And I think it's safe to say that all of us know people and love people in our families, in our lives, who've been divorced. And it's easy to hear these words of Jesus as judgment. And they've often been preached as judgment and condemnation. But I believe there is good news here, good news for all of us, even and perhaps even especially for those of us who have been divorced. And let me tell you why. First, let's look at the way this passage begins. Some Pharisees came to Jesus and to test him, they asked him about the legality of divorce. There are any number of passages in the scriptures where people pose questions to Jesus, not because they want to hear his answer, not because they want a genuine conversation where we are interested in learning each other's thoughts and feelings, but to test him, 
to provoke Jesus into saying something that will get him in trouble one way or the other. And whenever Jesus is asked a question like this in the Gospels, he never gives a direct answer. Rather, he consistently dodges questions posed in bad faith by reframing them, by revealing the flawed assumptions behind the question. Now, we're not told why the Pharisees think Jesus will be tripped up by answering a question about the lawfulness of divorce. Mark doesn't tell us this, but there are some possibilities. We know from outside the New Testament that there was a serious division actually among the Pharisees at the time of Jesus about under what conditions it was proper for a man to divorce his wife. Maybe the Pharisees wanted to get Jesus to take an issue aside on this divisive issue of his day. Another theory is that well, you know, John the Baptist had just gotten into trouble, deadly trouble, as it turned out, because he had criticized King Herod for divorcing his wife and marrying his sister-in-law. Well, Jesus, you know, your cousin John disapproved of the king's divorce, but wouldn't you have to admit Moses allows a man to divorce his wife, right? Maybe they wanted to force Jesus to take a side, either against his cousin John or against King Herod, and either way he'd get in trouble. Well, whatever the thinking behind the question, the assumption is that the law allows a man to divorce his wife at any time simply by writing a decree of divorce, by doing the right paperwork for no reason at all. But a woman did not have the same right against her husband. What we know is that Jesus saw through the bad faith of his questioners, and rather than answer the question, he questioned their assumptions. What makes you think God approves of a system where a man can divorce his wife, just fire her, dismiss her by doing the right paperwork, but a woman has to put up with whatever abuse her husband chooses to inflict on her? It's written in Genesis, Jesus says, human beings, male and female, together are the image and the likeness of God. It's written in Genesis, as we read today, that a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife and the two become one flesh. And yet Jesus says, here we have a system where it's the woman who is expected to leave her father and mother and become part of her husband's family almost like one of his cattle or one of his servants, subject to being fired at any time for any reason. That's not love, Jesus says. That's not becoming one flesh with a person. That's a business transaction. Instead of answering the trick question that's been posed to him, Jesus points out that this whole institution of patriarchal husband-centered marriage which is presupposed as normal and natural by everyone in his audience. This is not what God intended in the beginning. And you know, a lot of this thinking has been dismantled today, but even still, it's been around so long, it still comes up when I work with couples who are getting married. When we're planning the wedding ceremony, we talk about 
the entrance procession, I always say, you know, the days are over when a woman is treated as a man's property. You know, she used to belong to her father, and now he hands her off to her, to her new husband. So, you know, you don't have to have your father walk you down the aisle if you don't want to. And more often than not, that doesn't go over. Old habits die hard. The customs rooted in those days still live on. And in the gospel story today, even later, when the testing Pharisees are gone and Jesus is alone with his disciples, he makes, I think, the same point that marriage is a relationship of love between equal partners way before it's a business transaction among families. Even when Jesus uses the very harsh-sounding language of adultery, it's important for us to remember that even though we usually think of adultery as any kind of intimacy that is forbidden and therefore shameful, that's really not what most people throughout human history have thought of when they've heard that word. And you can even see that when Martin Luther explains the Ten Commandments in the large catechism. First he writes about murder the commandment, thou shalt not kill. And then he goes on to write this. The next commandments are easily understood from the preceding one. For they all teach us to guard against harming our neighbor in any way. They're admirably arranged. First, they deal with the person of our neighbor, thou shalt not kill. Then they go on to the speak of the person nearest to them, their, namely their spouse the most important thing to them after their own life, their spouse who is one flesh and blood with them. With respect to no other blessing can one do someone greater harm than here. Therefore, it is explicitly forbidden here to dishonor another's marriage partner. Notice that even for Luther, adultery is about dishonoring another person's marriage dishonoring another person's relationship. The worst thing, he says, the worst thing you can do to a person is kill him. The second worst thing that a man can do to another man is to steal his wife. In other words, even for Luther, the person who is sinned against in adultery is the other woman's husband. And for most of human history, that's what people meant by adultery disrespecting another person's marriage. And so I think what's noteworthy about Jesus in the gospel today is not that he's against adultery or even that he's against divorce. It's about who he says the victim is in adultery. You know, if Jesus had said, if a man is intimate with a married woman, he commits adultery against her husband. That would have been remarkable. Everybody in those days believed that. What's new is that Jesus raises the possibility of committing adultery against one's own partner. That was something new, hard for his disciples to wrap their heads around. Because in a world where a woman is her husband's property and is subject to being dismissed by him as long as he does the right paperwork, it doesn't make any sense that a man could commit adultery against his own wife. 
or even if the law allowed it, which it didn't, a woman against her own husband. This would only make sense in the world that Genesis tells us God created, where God saw it's not good for human beings to be alone, where God creates us for love and for communion and for intimacy with others where God calls us to love one another as equals, as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, as partners. This has been a long explanation, I know, but I think it's important for us to see what Jesus is doing in this passage. He's calling into question the whole transactional concept of marriage that his trick questioners presuppose. He's calling us beyond that to a vision of mutuality and equality and partnership. That's the foundation of a true relationship of love. But we know, and I think we can assume Jesus knows, that sometimes life is complicated. I mean, it would be lovely if a man left his father and mother and clung to his wife, and the two became one flesh, and they lived happily ever after. But we know that doesn't always happen. Sometimes it's one person's fault. Sometimes it's both parties' fault. Sometimes it's nobody's fault. But even with the best of intentions, sometimes relationships end. And sometimes they need to end because for whatever reason they've stopped being life-giving. And honesty demands that we acknowledge that and come to terms with that reality. Because whenever we open ourselves in love for somebody else, this is as true for physical intimacy or life partnership as it is in any of our relationships, in family, or at work, in our communities, in our church. Love means vulnerability. To love someone means there's a possibility that they may not love in return, that they may reject. Love means taking a risk that we might get hurt. And sometimes we do get hurt. Even in the best of marriages, you know, none of us is perfect. Sometimes our partner just doesn't love us the way we need to be loved. Sometimes we don't love our partner the way our partner needs to be loved. Even in the best of relationships, love never quite turns out the way that we expect. Even with the best of intentions, life rarely goes according to plan. Not for any of us, whether we're married, whether we're divorced, or whether we're single. Never. Whenever we take the risk of love, there is always some degree of disappointment and brokenness. In some of our relationships, sometimes we're lucky. We can work through that disappointment and that hurt. And in the reconciliation and healing our love and our relationship, is even stronger and deeper than it was before. And sometimes relationships die, or they become toxic, or they just simply stop being life-giving. 
And that's not always within our control. The only way to avoid the possibility of hurt is to avoid the risk of love altogether. Like the old Simon and Garfunkel song, I am a rock, I am an island, for a rock feels no pain and an island never cries. It takes a hard heart to never feel hurt or loss. And Jesus says it was because of your hardness of heart that men turned marriage and love into a business transaction. In that system, women were even more vulnerable. And Moses put in some paperwork requirements to protect them a little. But don't confuse that, Jesus says, for what God intended by creating us for communion and love. Yet a heart that isn't too hard to love is a heart that can be broken, a heart that in this world will be broken. And here's the good news. God loves us enough for God's own heart to be broken. God loved us enough to enter our world knowing that human beings would reject his love, would cause him harm, would literally break his heart open. To show us that the vulnerability of love is nothing to fear because God can raise up new life and new hope even in the midst of complete and utter failure and brokenness and despair. Remember where we are in Mark's Gospel. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Jesus has told his disciples what is going to happen in Jerusalem, but they don't get it. They can't process it. They can't understand it. They can't understand how the vulnerability of love, the possibility of being hurt by the ones that we love, could possibly be a place where new life and peace can be found. And Jesus is relentlessly showing his disciples step by step along the way that the path of love, even with its vulnerabilities, even if we're hurt by the ones that we love, even if love fails, Love is still the way that leads to the only kind of life that's worth living. If only we have the faith to see it through. And I think that's why Jesus ends this passage by again putting a child in the middle of his, of his disciples, taking a child in his arms, and telling his disciples the only way to enter the kingdom of God is to enter it like a child. Because children have no choice but to trust their parents, their families, their communities. Even when their trust is betrayed, they're children. They can't rely on themselves. They cannot pretend, as adults can, to be self-sufficient rocks and islands. The only way forward for a child is to love and to trust that somehow, in some way, they will be loved and cared for in return. May we, like children, whatever disappointments and failures and hurts we have experienced, 
May we also never give up on love. For God has promised that whenever human bonds have been broken, wherever human love has failed and people are lost and in pain, God's love never fails. God's love is never deterred by the fear of failure or loss. For it's precisely when all is lost and everything has failed. That's where the hope of resurrection begins. Thanks for listening to our sermon podcast. You're welcome to join us for Sunday worship online or if you're in Northern Virginia in person on Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time. For more information about us, please visit our website at epiphanylutheran.org. Thank you.